welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast. I'm Michael Johnston. Today I'm delighted to be joined by our Executive Director, Oliver Hartwich. Now Oliver has just led a trip to Ireland for our members and we'd like to discuss that today and find out what he and the other participants on the trip have learned. So maybe we'll start off with why we have these trips. It's the third such trip, I believe, following one to Switzerland and Denmark in the past. Why take our members overseas? Well, it started in 2017, and at the time we had been campaigning for four or five years on localism, on decentralization, and that is all quite abstract, actually, when you talk about it. And I found that many members couldn't quite relate to where I was coming from with our arguments. And so at that stage, I thought it would be nice to literally pack them on a bus and take them around Switzerland to show them, because there is no country in the world that does decentralization and localism as well as Switzerland. And I remember very well that when I first had the idea, and I mentioned it to our chair, Roger, at the time, he said, well, that's interesting, but why would members, I mean, we're talking about busy members, CEOs and chairs of large companies, take a week out of their working life to travel around the world to find out about local government? <laughs> and I think the solution at the time was just to make sure that we had a core group of people traveling that other members would like to spend time with. And so we took them to Switzerland. In the end, we had a group of 36 people. We spent a week traveling around Switzerland learned a lot about the place, and were totally inspired by what we found. Yeah. And we enjoyed each other's company. And so out of that came the idea, well, we should do this more often. And so we traveled to Denmark a couple of years later. We had a day in Sweden as well. And it would have been Ireland in 2021 had it not been for COVID. That delayed us because we couldn't travel. And so this finally happened now. So this was our third trip. And I should say they are not trade delegations. They're not your usual business delegations where you try to exchange as many business cards as you can and try to find trade partners. They are really more study tours. Tours where our members, who are all members of the initiative because they care for public policy, are trying to find inspiration for New Zealand, how to make the country work better. In Switzerland's case, that was on localism, local government, but we also found something about apprenticeships there. In Denmark, it was just a general efficiency of government, which really impressed us. And in Ireland, well, what we really wanted to find out is how the country managed to transform itself from being the poorhouse of Europe, a basket case economy really, only about 40 years ago, to one of the most prosperous countries you can find in the world. Yeah, okay. And Ireland, of course, is in many ways comparable to New Zealand in terms of its population to some extent, an agrarian base for its economy. Uh, but that has been transformed in the past couple of decades, especially through the technology industry. And I believe one of the things you did was to visit the Intel factory there. Is that right? You, That's uh, right. And maybe starting with the parallels. I mean, there are many parallels. So first of all, population-wise, both countries currently at about 5.1 million people, almost identical. Mm. Also countries that are island nations next to a larger island nation neighbor. So we've got that as well. And until about 30 years ago, the countries would have been the same in GDP per capita terms. Except that's completely changed. So Ireland is now almost twice our GDP per capita level. So they have obviously developed a lot better than us over the last 30 years. 
So you mentioned we went to Intel, not just Intel, by the way, we visited other companies too. We wanted to figure out how Ireland managed to attract companies like that. So Intel was one company we visited. Another one was Thermoking. That's a name, probably not quite a household name, but you might have seen Thermoking as a logo on trucks and trailers because they are the guys doing the refrigeration units for these trucks and trailers. And what they have in common is that both of them are American companies that decided to settle in Ireland because Ireland actually offered them good business conditions. And so purpose behind our trip is to figure out what makes these companies tick, what makes them invest in Ireland, and what would it take for these companies to consider New Zealand as a destination for the next investment. Yeah. And, you know, clearly everybody had a good time on the trip, but then... It's unavoidable in Ireland to have a good time. That's right. You visited the Guinness factory. How can you not have a good time there? A bit we of went to a Teeling Whiskey Distillery. Whiskey too. tasting along the way, all of that. And yet... People came home feeling a little bit sad about the situation in New Zealand compared with the transformation that's taken place in Ireland. Yeah, that was one of the differences actually between our current trip and the last one, or the first one actually. So when we went to Switzerland, and that was in May 2017, people felt good about New Zealand. Yes, Switzerland was a bit more successful in some ways than New Zealand, but still we felt like we were on a good path. And now we just had to figure out a few things, to tweak it along the way and become a little bit more successful still. After this week in Ireland, meanwhile, six years on, it felt like nobody was really comfortable with how things are in New Zealand. And then you see a country like Ireland that is thriving, that is prosperous, that is in some ways booming. And you wonder what's happened to us. Uh, what what have we lost? And that was a change in mood. And actually, many of our delegation members told me at the end of the week that that week in Ireland was the one week, probably in decades, that they spent thinking the most about New Zealand. Yeah. It tells you something. It, it does. So it would be good to drill a bit more into some of the specific issues that came up and, and that have been revealed through the trip as being things that New Zealand needs to improve on if we want to have anything like that kind of future that they, they've built for themselves in mm. Ireland. So what would you say are the main things that are going right in Ireland but not in New Zealand? Well, that was actually the challenge given to us, believe it or not, by Trevor Mellot. So Trevor Mellot will probably all remember as a Speaker of the House and previously a Minister. He's now New Zealand's ambassador to Ireland. And we started our trip with a reception in Trevor Mellot's garden at the New Zealand residence. The lawn was well watered, I believe. The lawn was well <laughs> watered. Well, actually, the lawn showed some tinges of brown. And as Trevor told me, he hadn't figured out how to use the sprinklers properly. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. That's the first time that he... Hadn't figured that out. No, seriously, Trevor's doing a really good job as a, an ambassador now. I think he's found his calling. And he talked to our group the first evening and said, okay, so you're here in Ireland now, and your task is to figure out what makes the Irish tick, what makes them successful, and what you would like to take home. And the rest of the week, we basically did our homework for Trevor. <laughs> and we tried to figure out how Ireland actually developed, what it got right, what it probably didn't get quite right, because it's not perfect in every way. And we started off with a basically a seminar day where we invited speakers from the Chamber of Commerce, from the Irish Enterprise Ministry, 
other groups of journalists, ex-politicians, think tankers to basically give us their view on Ireland and give us their potted history of what happened in the last 30, 40 years. And the funny thing was actually their stories were remarkably consistent. didn't really matter whether you've had someone from government or from business or journalists. They all roughly had the same story. So the potted history is that Ireland decided it wanted to develop. <laughs> Fancy that. Mm. And they thought the way to do this was actually to have a business-friendly climate and attract companies, be open to outward investment, actually try to seek out international investment, but also have a passion for education. Yeah. So be a well-educated country prepared for these international investors and then also pursue a very low corporate tax rate policy. And the funny thing was, you think in New Zealand terms, this would be controversial. There would always be some people saying, well, oh, this is a big mistake and we can't have that. And we're talking about extremely low corporate tax rates. In Ireland's case, up until the present moment, 12.5%. Mm. And yet, even speakers, we had one speaker who was a former Labour Party minister in Ireland, defended that, saying, no, this is great, it's fantastic, um, works, and we are open to capital and we want this kind of business development and we want business here. So I found this quite remarkable that this former Labour Party minister, by New Zealand standards, would have been to the right of act. Yeah. And the other thing I must say is actually when a country has a narrative that is shared widely, that matters. And, and that makes a massive difference. And I actually thought over the week, what would happen if we had the kind of delegation visit in reverse, where an Irish delegation travels around New Zealand trying to figure out what makes our country tick and how we think about politics and business and regulation. I actually think they would probably hear a thousand different stories because we don't have that national narrative in a way that the Irish have. Oh, by the way, the Danes or the Swiss as well. So this is something that always struck me visiting these international successful places, that they are singing from the same hymn sheet no matter where they come from. Yeah. So that was interesting and that was a good starting point really for our week in Ireland. On our second day then, Tuesday of that week, we took a bus ride to Galway. And if you're familiar with Irish geography, that's basically a bus ride across the whole country from one coast to the other. So we were going, we were going westwards, and the weather was getting worse throughout the journey. We left Dublin at around 22 degrees in sunshine and arrived in the pouring rain at 16 degrees in Galway, and we were told this is quite normal. So <laughs> the first impression was not too appealing or inviting, really. And we got to the technology center, the Galway Technology Center, for a presentation with representatives of the IDA. That's the inward agency trying to attract international investment into Ireland. And Enterprise Ireland, which does the opposite, trying to help Irish exporters. And we were told actually their approach to development for this part of Ireland. And that was interesting actually having it there rather than in Dublin because... Just for some context, Galway is a place about the size of Palmerston North. So we're talking about maybe 80,000 people. So not a big, great commercial metropolis. Not a place that in the past has been wealthy at all. In fact, quite impoverished, I believe. Yes, yes, and certainly rural and certainly not central. So it's on the outskirts of Dublin, which is on the outskirts of Europe, really. Mm. And yet the economic development story of Galway was phenomenal. So there ye had, I believe, 12 out of the 15 largest international pharmaceutical companies with a presence in Galway. 
and roughly the same proportion for IT companies, international IT companies. We had a presentation from the IDA in which they had the logos of the international companies invested in Galway on a screen. And they were really tiny logos because they had to fit them all in. And it was absolutely astonishing to see just what a magnet for international investment this tiny place Galway has been. Yeah. And the other thing they explained then was, of course, what role education played in all of this. So, as I said, they have 80,000 people in Galway, but within an 80-kilometer circle around Galway, they had about 60,000 tertiary students, and they're cooperating massively, especially with their engineering departments. So that was interesting. And then the IDA also told us their approach to international potential investors. So where we in New Zealand have an overseas investment office that often puts up the stop sign to international investment, where they're checking whether you're of good character, and where reportedly even Tim Cook of Apple took about two years to have himself cleared as a good character before Apple was allowed to invest in New Zealand. In Galway, it's the opposite. In Galway, they're taking you by the hand. They basically roll out the green carpet, I mean, the island, and they make sure that your company gets the right advice, that there is some place where you can actually build your factory if you want to. People will look after you to make sure that your kids find the right school. And on top of that, they help you with the visa applications. Well, in New Zealand, all of this is the opposite. I mean, any company in New Zealand who's ever dealt with immigration in New Zealand trying to get people into the country, they will tell you what a nightmare that is. It's a bureaucratic nightmare. It takes forever. In Ireland, it was the opposite. They really wanted you there. Yeah. And so that was just impressive. And then as we finished the presentations at the Galway Technology Centre, they walked us across the road, I mean, quite literally, and we got into Thermoking's factory, which is a factory that you wouldn't find in New Zealand, about probably 200 meters long and 100 meters wide. And they built these thermo units for trucks and trailers. And I've never seen so many robots in my life together. Mm. And apparently also great cooperation with the local university, with the engineering departments, where the students come in and learn the latest technology and vice versa. The company benefits from having the students in there. So it was just out of this world. And all the while in a place like Galway, not in Dublin, not in a major center, but in a provincial kind of town, this kind of investment and this kind of economic development, it was mightily impressive. So you've mentioned low corporate tax rates. You've mentioned a nice open doorway policy with immigration and getting capital into the country. Are those the main pillars of their success in securing these big international firms putting down roots in Ireland? Is there anything else? Absolutely. I mean, there are key ingredients in the mix, except it's probably not enough to just have business-friendly policies. That was actually one thing. Later that day, we had a dinner in Dublin with a leading representative of a large Irish company. And in his words, it was not so much the fact that Ireland just had business-friendly policies. He said... No, we have a business-friendly culture. Mm. And everything flows from culture. So the policies are just the outward expression of having this business-friendly mindset. And maybe that's one of the caveats, actually, to consider when trying to take the Irish lessons to New Zealand. You could copy some of the policies. You could copy the IDA and have an inward investment agency. But actually, it's this business-friendly culture, the mindset that actually government and business should try to work together towards some common goals to drive the country forward. And it sounds as if they've achieved quite they bipartisan have. support for that yes. kind of culture. Yes, t- totally they have. 
And so it's a special kind of mindset that is business friendly, that focuses on education and that doesn't question this anymore and really is constructive, is trying to make the best decisions in the long run for Ireland, but doesn't have this kind of naysaying mentality that you often encounter in New Zealand these days. Yeah. Well, I'd like to turn to education. That, of course, is something very close to my heart. So tell us what you found when you, I think you visited the Ministry for Education there. Yeah, almost, almost. <laughs> we met with the Ministry for Education, but as it turned out, they didn't have a hall large enough for a group. So instead, they hosted us in the foreign office. It was grand. <laughs> so we were taken into these hallowed halls, marble kind of floors, and beautifully decorated building. It looked like a palace, but it was a foreign office, and the Education Ministry officials met us there, even nicer. So we had presentations from four of them working in different parts of the education ministry, and they all, again, t told us roughly the same story, that Ireland has a passion for education, that it sees an educated workforce and educated citizenry as one of the key factors for its long-term development. What really struck me, though, well, two things, really. First, the, the basics, kind of approach to education. It was none of the fancy kind of vocabulary that you would get from the New Zealand education ministry. It was mercifully ideology-free. It was just basics, just making sure that students learn, that they learn to read and write and do some maths and that they get a decent education. So it was as you would expect an education ministry to be, except our ministry in New Zealand isn't like that anymore. So that was refreshing and nice to hear. But the other thing was the use of data. <laughs> They measured everything. They wanted to really see how their students progress, how their schools track. And so, for example, they have one program in Ireland that is open to schools from disadvantaged backgrounds. They are not forced into the program, but they can access funds from that program and help from that program if they want to. And then they track schools that uh, access the program to see how they're doing. And they found actually that this program is effective because it actually manages to get these schools and their students closer to the national average over time once they sign up to the program. So just the fact that there is decent measurement makes a massive difference. Well, we know that it does. It's, it's one of the things that Professor John Hattie, who worked for a long time in New Zealand, is now in Australia, found in his big meta-analyses really drives success if, if data is used to improve teachers' practice. I think it does as well come back to culture again, as you said, with the business environment. The educational culture there has been different for a long time, in part because for many, many decades it was largely controlled by the Catholic Church. And that gave it a certain cultural status that perhaps we haven't had in New Zealand for the teaching profession for a long time. And that, I think, is a big puzzle for us to solve. It's how we get from a a culture of fairly low esteem for the teaching profession to one where people really want to be teachers. That's exactly right, and that's what we heard many times over the week. So in Ireland, being a teacher is highly regarded. It is seen as an ambitious kind of career that people really want to, where sometimes in New Zealand, becoming a teacher is a career of last resort. Mm. By the way, this is not necessarily correlated with higher pay. So we looked it up, actually, how much you earn as a teacher in Ireland, and it wasn't that much. It certainly wasn't more generous than it is in New Zealand, but the esteem, the, popular, the, the teaching profession is held in, is much higher. So there are cultural aspects. And as I said, there are cultural aspects and the generally poor business attitude, too. 
Later that day, actually, when we heard the education ministry, we also heard from Ireland's enterprise minister, Simon Coveney, spoke to our group. And again, one thing that I remember was he said he cannot travel around Ireland, not even to the smallest village, without being asked by locals, actually, how can you please attract some extra foreign direct investment for my part of Ireland. Yeah. Again, this is the kind of conversation that they have in Ireland on a daily basis and it doesn't happen in New Zealand at all. So there are some cultural things on investment, on business, on education that seem to be completely different in Ireland compared to New Zealand. Yeah. Now we've talked about some of the similarities between Australia, uh, sorry, Ireland and New Zealand. One difference, of course, is that Ireland is a member of the European Union. Uh, mm -hmm with a population of some hundreds of millions. Now, we have a, a close economic agreement with Australia with a population of about 25 million. And that's pretty much it, apart from a few free trade agreements or semi-free trade agreements with other countries around the world. To what extent do you think EU membership has facilitated Ireland's success? I think it had a massive role to play because it opened up a massive market to Ireland. Actually, in the conversations we've had in Ireland, nobody could understand why the Brits decided to go for Brexit. Because from an Irish perspective, why would anyone say no to this massive market in front of its doorstep? So there was obviously some co-investment also from the European Union, and you can see this in beautiful motorways. So traveling from Dublin to Galway on a four-lane motorway with no potholes, which is also quite nice from a New Zealand perspective, it, it did convey the message actually that they got some things right in infrastructure development and probably also benefited from having the European Union. That said, they are now wealthier than the European Union average, so the Irish have now actually started contributing towards mm. funds for other, for the benefit of other EU members. So, yep, the European Union certainly helped in the early stages of Ireland's development, but I don't think it's that big a factor anymore, at least not when it comes to having its infrastructure financed. Right. Yes. Now, you also took a side trip to Ulster, to Northern Ireland. Yes. So how was that? How did that compare with, with the Republic of Ireland? Yeah, it, it was interesting. Well, first of all, I didn't quite know what to expect. I mean, I had been to Belfast before, but I would say almost 20 years ago. And what I know about the Northern Irish economy is that it was always heavily dependent on London. I mean, there were times when the UK government accounted for about 70% of uh, Northern Ireland's GDP. And I wasn't quite sure what to expect now, especially after Brexit. And so first question, many members of our group asked, do we need passports now? Well, no, as it turned out, we didn't. We took a train. There were no passport controls. You can still travel from Dublin to Belfast and nobody checks anything. So that was good. We then went straight from the train station to Stormont. That's the seat of the Northern Irish Assembly, so the local parliament or regional parliament. And the funny thing about Stormont is, of course, that this parliament is dysfunctional. Um, it is, isn't sitting at the moment because of Brexit, because the parties cannot find an agreement. And actually, I struggle to understand how they could even find agreement on how to square the circle of having an independent UK now after Brexit and still Northern Ireland is part of the EU's common market via its links to the Republic of Ireland. And so for years they've been discussing this question and they're not closer to a solution at the moment. And so the Northern Irish Assembly is dysfunctional for the time being. We had the Speaker of the 
assembly speak to us, and I must say, honestly, I didn't understand a word he said. He should have probably switched on his microphone. Maybe it was his accent. Um, maybe it was something completely different. But anyway, uh, he spoke to us, and I didn't understand him much, which I thought was also kind of apt. So a speaker you can't hear in an assembly that doesn't sit <laughs> was, was a bit the right kind of image. But then something really interesting happened. After the speaker left, we had four members of that non-functioning assembly speak to us in a panel discussion. And these members actually ranged from Sinn Féin, the Catholic Party, to uh, Democratic Ulster Unionists and the Unionist, Ulster Unionists and the Alliance Party. So basically all across the political spectrum. And a funny thing that happened there was they seemed to get on. The, the body language signaled that these are kind of good mates sitting together trying to do what's right for their country. And we couldn't quite figure out how genuine this was, but at least the first impression was they get on and they are trying to be constructive and pragmatic about their situation and they all acknowledge each other's challenges in dealing with it. So that was a highly impressive kind of session we had at yeah. the assembly. I'm sure that nobody wants to go back to the to the troubles. So Certainly not. They've got a lot of motivation to get on. No, and what really impressed me was it was a member of the Democratic Ulster Unionist. So party that wants to keep the relationship with the UK alive and wants to remain part of the UK. And of course, they are in the majority in Northern Ireland, about 70% of the population comes from that kind of background. And he said, actually, all these years, we thought, well, we've got a kind of democracy and you can vote. And now I realize how unfair this was because the minority never really had a chance. Mm. And he looked at the Sinn Féin colleague and they basically nodded to each other. And they realized that it couldn't go on like that. So that was actually quite heartwarming to see, and I hope it was genuine. But then again, we spent a day in Northern Ireland, and I think nobody can come, become an expert on Northern Irish politics after just a day right. because these issues are intractable in some ways, and they've been with us for decades. Yeah, and not a, a completely dissimilar to some of the challenges that New Zealand faces with also a minority indigenous population. Yes, and probably a, quite a sobering reminder that you should not go down the path of division, but you should actually try to find common ground. Yeah, absolutely. So the members came home feeling a bit of a wake-up call about well, New we got Zealand. The, we got the final wake-up call a day later, actually, when we were back in Dublin, because that was the highlight of our trip. Yeah. We went to that interfactory that you mentioned oh, yes. earlier. Yeah. And this was the culmination of a week, really, because we had been talking a lot about international investment and foreign investment and bringing companies in in a business-friendly culture. But then we had the culmination of all of that on that Friday when we went to Intel in County Kildare on the outskirts of Dublin. So just to put things into perspective, in a normal year, New Zealand gets about three, four billion US dollars of inward investment. We're not doing particularly well. That's roughly what we get. The factory we visited in County Kildare, the Intel factory, had a project volume of about 53 billion New Zealand dollars, several times larger than what we get in a normal year. They have been going since 1989, and they showed us picture, actually. It was just an kind of agricultural area before. There was nothing there, and now they've got this multi-billion dollar factory sitting there. And then they explained to us, actually, that in the last few years, they actually built another complex within that factory and explained just how much steel they used. And I think it was f 
maybe four or five times what they used for the Eiffel Tower, how much concrete, and it was several times the Burj Khalifa, and the numbers just blew you away. Mm -hmm. And with that, they have created six and a half thousand square meters of clean space. So basically, where there is absolutely not a single bit of dust anywhere because that's what they need to build their fancy nanometer chips. And yeah. it was just impressive to see this massive factory. And so we asked then, so what would it take Intel to consider New Zealand as a place for its next factory? Because they have factories in Israel, they've got a factory even in Costa Rica, they've got it in Ireland, obviously, in the US, and they're building a next one in Germany now. And the answer was quite clear. It has a lot to do with your workforce. Is it educated? Is it mathematically educated? Is it scientifically educated? And if it is, we might consider you. And if it isn't, then probably not. And actually, one of our members said, well, what would you make of a country that currently abolished its science teaching by not talking about physics or chemistry or biology or atoms or molecules or anything like that in its science curriculum? To which the Intel manager responded, well, I can tell you my 16 or 70-year-old daughter would find your country very appealing, but Intel would not. <laughs> yes, quite. So... Hopefully our members will not just be depressed by the state of New Zealand compared with Ireland, but be inspired to use the trip to argue for some change. Do you, do you think that there's a mood amongst the members that they're going to make something out of this and really push for some different approaches here? Absolutely. That mood was palpable. So our members were at the same time a bit depressed because they could see, actually, here's a country working a lot better than New Zealand. And we thought we were doing kind of okay. We were not really that happy about New Zealand, but we didn't realize just how poorly we are performing compared how, how to how much better like it Ireland could be. And we, how much better it could be. So that was a bit depressing. And you could sense that among our group, actually, that there was this feeling we've completely missed the boat here and look how far they've gone. On the other hand, you could feel that members really got inspired and enthused about change. And they really now wanted to return to New Zealand to tell everybody about, about what they had found and what they had witnessed and experienced. Because the, the country can be so much better if we just learn just a few lessons from the Irish. Well, it seems like the, this idea of taking members internationally is a really good one if, if they come back with that kind of inspiration. Any plans for another trip in a couple of years' time? And where would you go? There are a few countries I would consider. I think, generally speaking, they should be smallish because I think small countries tick differently. And they're more like us. They're they? more like us. I mean, taking members to a country like the US or France, Britain, Germany, something like that, yeah, you could probably learn a, f a thing or two, but in the end, smaller countries work differently. So I think we should actually focus on these smaller economies. And then, of course, the next challenge is you want to have a country that inspires you. So a country, ideally, that's not doing worse than us, even though they might be hard to find these days, but something that actually works a lot better and where we can take inspiration home with us. So with all that said, I'm thinking about a few smaller countries now and definitely in the next couple of years we'll make a decision on where to go next. I'll look forward to updates on that in due course. And Thank you for joining us today. Thank you.